Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lovati. We have a very exciting episode for you today, as I'm joined by the best-selling author, Gary Rowe. In addition to being an author, Gary is a speaker, a chaplain, and an overall grief specialist. He has over a dozen books and 700 articles in print, and he most recently served as a chaplain and grief counselor for a hospice center in Texas. Gary has been on my list for quite some time, and it really was an honor to be able to sit down with him today. We get into quite a bit around grief on this episode. Gary discusses how his early experiences with grief and loss put him on a path to help others. He talks about the lessons he'd learned from being taken in by a friend's family as a teenager. We discuss the way grief is stored and processed by the body. My favorite part of the episode, Gary gives us some really practical and tactical skills that can be applied to integrate grief into your life. And finally, Gary touches on how his relationship with God has informed his viewpoints and his life experiences. Uh, One thing I want to throw out there, I've said this on other episodes, but as a relatively new podcast, it would be incredibly helpful if you could leave us a review or rating on your platform of choice. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and give us a five-star rating. That would really help us a lot. As always, I found this to be a helpful and powerful episode, and I'm sure you will as well. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's betterhelp.com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Gary, good morning. Hey, Rob. Good to see you. Great to be here. Good to see you as well. Thank you for joining me today. It's it's an honor and a privilege to be speaking with you. Um, you've been on my list for a little while now, and it, it's great to finally be here face to face with you today. Well, thank you. I'm I'm honored to be here. Um, I'm honored to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's important not to forget that. It, it is important not to forget that. But I'm honored to be here, and I'm honored to be with you and all your work on this hugely important topic. Thank you. Thank no, thank you. I appreciate that. And that's that's why I'm looking forward to speaking with you so much today is because I view you the same way as this pivotal figure when it comes to something that is as massive and inescapable as grief is. Mm-hmm. It's something we are all going to experience at some point in our lives. 
and we are all ill-equipped to deal with it. Yes, we are. Uh, unfortunately, the tool belt that we're given um, as, as we're growing up is quite small. At least I found mine was. And I believe you have put out a lot of awesome tools uh, between your over 12 books that you've published. Uh, I believe it's 700 or so articles a lot of which talk about some very specific and tactical things that people can do to help them. I don't know if I like the word overcome, but maybe integrate grief into their lives. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yes, I, I like the word integrate as well, because we're never free of grief. We keep trying to get out of it. <laughs> but the yep. reality is we're always surrounded by a loss of some kind. And uh, because some of our losses are so significant, they, they never really go away because we're designed for connection, not for separation. And mm. so when, when separation happens, that sticks with us. We learn to live with it. We heal through it. We grow. But uh, just, just to make sure when I say we heal, I don't mean we go back to being who we were before. Uh, yeah. that, that, that never happens. It's much like when you break a leg. And a doctor does surgery and the surgeon says, well, we fixed it and it's as good as new. Well, no, it's not. It's not the same leg anymore. Uh, it's fixed. It's healed, but it's not the same. And there are times when your leg will let you know that it's not the same. Absolutely. That's that's very well put. And, and it makes me think of a conversation I had with a gentleman named Dr. Jack Jordan, uh, who I had on the podcast a few episodes ago. And he referred to something, I haven't heard it put in this way, but he talked about the flu model of grieving. Hmm. Is that something you've heard of or are familiar with? I am not familiar with that. It's, it's pretty much what it sounds like, which is this idea that I think a lot of us have when it comes to grief uh, as something that we will experience. Uh, we hope it's going to be as short term and hmm. uh, non-invasive as possible, and then it's going to go away. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you'd agree that that's not the way it works. That that is not the way it works at all. Uh, and luckily, luckily, fortunately, that's not the way it works, because that would mean, well, just imagine we've lost someone very significant to us. How can that go away? I mean, what what would that say about you and I if it went away? What would mm. it say about the importance of that person in our lives? if that just went away and we went back to who we were before. Um, no, these things are great. We're, we are people with hearts. And once our hearts are wounded, um, we can heal from that. But it's life continues to bump that wound. You know, these things that remind us of our loved one, the things that remind us of other losses. And, and when those wounds get bumped, it hurts. So mm. on some level, we all need to be prepared to be grieving on some level all the time. Now, that sounds terrible because we immediately think grief is this intense, heavy thing all the time. Well, no, it's not. It ebbs and it flows. There are times of stark intensity. Uh, there's, there's times when it just takes us completely over, perhaps. And then there's times when it's a dull ache and we don't really know why it's there, but Things are different and it just hurts and we don't like it. And then there's other times where there are these needles kind of thrust into our soul all of a sudden when we hear a certain song or 
we get a whiff of a certain fragrance or something mm. like that. And we are really, we're having a flashback is what we're doing. Um, and it comes upon us very, very quickly and very sharply. So one of the things we need to dump in the trash can is this idea that grief is this single small thing that we think it is. It is so large. It is so varied. It's so flexible. It's unpredictable. It's predictably unpredictable. Um, and it's a challenge to, ma to manage. And the best way to manage it is to actually embrace it, feel it through, work it through, so that no matter how much we grieve, we stay on the path of healing and growth. Because if we'll let it, if we'll let loss and grief teach us, they can teach us incredibly valuable lessons. We can learn what's really important in life. We can learn how to live better. We can learn how to live more simply because we suddenly realize there's very few things that really matter. And all of those lessons can only be learned, really, uh, I think, through loss and pain and suffering. Sad to say, we're slow learners with, wow. with this. And we love comfortability and we hate pain. So, of course, we wouldn't wish grief on anyone or upon ourselves, but we deal better with life and we're more ourselves when we're in the moment and we're real with what's going on, whatever that is. Beautifully said. Yeah, you described the different states that grief can take on being this very intense thing. You use the words needles in the soul that, that really connected for me in this moment. Uh, in my experience, there is also a profound numbness that comes with grief that I've never, I've never felt the absence of feeling in that way. And, you know, I think when it comes to grief, it, it's, it's viewed at, at least for me, uh, early on in my journey, I, I viewed grief a lot. Like I viewed anger or fear or disgust. It was a negative thing. I wanted to stay away from it. And with that staying away from it, that numbness only intensified. And, and I'm wondering how, how you look at grief as an entity. Do you look at it as, is it an emotion that we experience? Is it a state of being? Is it something else entirely? That's a great question that I don't really know that I have a firm answer to. But here mm. we go. As I talk, maybe something will pop out that's useful. Um I, I think that uh, I, I don't view grief as an emotion or as a feeling. Uh, now, there's tons of feelings that are attached to grief. I, grew, I view grief as a, uh, maybe it is a state of being of sorts, um, where it's a natural and healthy response to a real or perceived loss. Because, of course, a perceived loss is really a loss for that person uh, the reason I say perceived is that might not be a loss for me. If I, we're not talking about death here. We're talking about, I, I should back up and say, loss is much bigger than the death of a person. Right. Um, it can be the loss of a job, the loss of physical ability, a, a diagnosis, um, uh, the loss of a home, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a hope, uh, you know, crumpled expectations. I mean, all of those things. And what might be a loss to me that's devastating, 
might not even be a loss to someone else. It's, it depends on who we are and where we are and where we're at. And so I do think that we could call it perhaps uh, a state of being that grief is really a part of us and a part of our hearts because we began experiencing losses very early in life, all of us. Um, again, a perceived loss. I'm going to paint this as an extreme picture here, but um, an infant um, suddenly realizes it's alone and it's hungry. Mm -hmm. I don't know, and we don't know, what does an infant feel at that moment? Because we're designed, I believe, created in the image of God and designed specifically for connection, relationship with God and relationship with other people. And when we don't get that, it's trouble. I mean, it's just flat trouble for all of us. So, um, and then the baby cries, probably. Or, or the and and as a result, what what is it doing? It's crying out for connection. It might be crying out to be fed. It might be by the but the first time an infant's expectations, however we define that, aren't met, they experience grief on some level. And we learn very early how to deal with certain unmet expectations and losses. We develop strategies. We cry louder. We scream louder. We um. Who knows what we do? We we act out. We grow very silent. It could be anything. And so very early on, we begin developing this personal system for how we deal with uh, personal pain, personal grief, blown expectations and and losses. So, yes, I think it becomes a part of us very, very early. And the real task, I think, a, a huge task in life, massive task in life is how do we grieve in healthy ways? Because we're going to be grieving. We have experienced losses and we will experience losses. Um, we can't, we can try to run from that, but you can't run from grief. It just stays right there. Um, we can, we can try to fight it, but grief is unfightable. I mean, it, it resides within us. And if we don't find proactive, healthy ways to process it, it leaks. And when grief leaks, it's usually not pleasant. It, mm. it usually it usually ends up coming out in bursts of anger or depression or frustration or irritability or self-harm or any kinds of things that we really end up regretting. So, um, you know, I'm fond of saying, of course, that... As, as I guess a, they, they say, a grief expert, I don't know exactly what that is, but um, that every issue we have in life that's a trouble issue is a grief issue. Because if you think about it for a minute, everything we struggle with in life, everything is related to a loss of some kind, either a loss we've experienced or a loss we fear we're going to experience in, in the future. Even organic stuff, being born with a handicap, um, there, there's loss that comes with, with that. So learning how to grieve and learning how to grieve well and handling it and recognizing it as grief, I think is really important. Wow. Yeah, you, you talk about this almost preemptive grief that exists within us, the idea of 
my my mother is going to die someday or someday I'm not going to have the same physical abilities that I do now. Um, that's not something I really considered much, at least intentionally, but I know that's something I experience quite often. I really appreciate the way that you describe grief and I'm going to do my best to summarize it here in a definition that I, I think makes sense. Mm. If I could string the words together, uh, would you agree that we could call grief a profound sense of loss tied to the absence of something important to us? Yes. Okay. Let's, all right, let's wrap it up here then. We're good to go. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. We've solved the issues and we're good to go. Yes. There, there's probably things if we really thought about it, of course, there's probably things we would add to that or maybe change. Surely. What we do, but Surely. That's, that's, I think that's pretty good, Rob. Cool. Well, let's put a stamp on it. And what I'm curious about, Gary, is if you could share with us some of your own personal experience with grief, I'm wondering about maybe some of the the early hurts that you experienced in life mm. that contributed to your experience of, of grief, loss, and bereavement, and how they've impacted uh, your life and where you find yourself today. Oh. Whew. Okay, here we go. Um, uh, the, the first big thing in my life is that I um, I lost some chunks of my childhood uh, to the evil of sexual abuse. Um, multiple ages three to six for sure. Um, in anyway, um, multiple perpetrators, multiple over several years, multiple instances. All of the perpetrators were family members, um, and so. Uh, there's a lot of loss that comes with that, just to string them together here, uh, a loss of innocence, a loss of trust, a loss of, uh, uh, and this would, I would count this as a loss, a very skewed idea of relationships, of love, of um, safety, um, a loss of safety, a skewed view of the world, family, God, um, all kinds of things <clears throat> come from that. Um, in addition to that, uh, lost both grandparents, uh, excuse me, both grandfathers, uh, by the time I was about six years old. Um, uh, one grandmother never knew who I was because of dementia. So that was an interesting relationship, so so to speak. And um, my my home life, as you might guess, was not, it was very stable on the outside. Uh, because uh, my family was very into appearances, um, as most people are to some degree. They we can hold it together in public, you know. But inside, it was it was volatile. It was unpredictable. My mar my parents' marriage was not good. It was I didn't know that because it's the only thing I had experienced. But uh, it was explosive. It was volatile. Uh, it ranged between explosive anger and that stone cold silent stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, lots of unpredictability in the household. Um, in, in addition to that, um, uh, one of my best friends when I was 12, I was in junior high school. Um, I was in, I was in seventh grade. He sat right in front of me in homeroom. Uh, he died over Christmas break of spinal meningitis. And I can remember hearing from the teacher when she announced it after Christmas break, and staring at this empty desk in front of me and um, 
you know, you have those times where you kind of blank out is what I would call it. Not blackout, but blank out. Yeah. I, I don't know how long I stared at his chair. I, I, but I remember thinking, you know, the whole thing, it can't be real. This is not. And for the rest of that semester, you know, that empty chair, I got to start every day with that empty chair in front of me where Jeff used to sit and thinking to myself for the first time in life, even with all that stuff in the background, I, I thought, why? I, I don't understand this. Uh, a key thing for me, Rob, was um, about two years before Jeff died, uh, I was aware that my life was very painful. I don't, I don't remember feeling depressed, but I probably was as a kid. I was certainly anxious. I was a competitive swimmer from age six all the way through college. And I think that kept a lot of things in check for me physically. You know, I had this huge outlet of two to three hours to four hours a day in the water that got helped me manage a lot of stuff that was going on in my little life, uh, pain, anxiety, depression. It connected me with other people outside my family, which was huge. And um, at about the age 10, at about age 10, I said, okay, I've always believed that God existed. And I've always believed that he's good. But that's not good enough. Uh, if, if he's really there, I have to know him. I mean, it was an internal drive um, because if I don't have that connection and something's a lot bigger than myself, I'm in trouble. I mean, I, I kind of knew that. I couldn't express that, of course, but looking back, that's kind of what I knew. So uh, one family member graciously every Sunday took me to a church, dropped me off at the back door. And I went and some, the first Sunday, some uh, little old lady uh, found me and graciously led me to a Sunday school class of boys my age. And one thing led to another. And I became personally familiar with and in a relationship with Jesus Christ over the next couple of years. And it turns out that that relationship has saved my life in I, I can't anyway. So that's a key point at about age 11 or 12 that happened just prior to my friend Jeff's death. Um, and then, you know, people say, wow, come to God or come to Jesus and everything will be great. Well, I'm not a good example of that because yeah. it, everything fell apart. The world doesn't change. Well, the world changes, but anyway, not in terms of its challenge to us. So things for me and the family, all those things that we tried to kept, keep together for appearances began to develop cracks in them, you know, and things began to fall apart. Um, my parents separated and divorced. Uh, this was in the mid 70s. So by default, I lived with my mom. Uh, she had actually been drifting into mental illness for probably decades, but nobody really knew what to do with that. And as an appearance oriented family, you know, you don't touch that with a 10 foot pole. So um, it wasn't good. She had a mental breakdown and ended up going into psychiatric care. So I bounced over and lived with my dad, had a great six months with him. He was healthier than he had ever been. And then one Sunday afternoon uh, in the kitchen of our apartment, he dropped in front of me of a heart attack, uh, never regained consciousness. Oh, my gosh. They, they got his heart resuscitated, which is very important for me. It ended up being extremely important. Um 
but there was no brain activity. So he existed on machines, but it gave me a week in the hospital to look at him, to spend back then, you could only spend 15 minutes twice a day. So boom, I was there, you know, for that 15 minutes twice a day. I memorized his face. I said everything I wanted to say um, because I knew he, I knew he was gone. Um, and then after a week, uh, I have one bro brother who's 14 years older than I am and nobody in between. So a week later, my brother and I got to nod our heads that, yeah, turn off because he would never, and there's no hope and all of those other things. But that had a profound impact on me. Several things, just really quick, the profound impact. Uh, I was a licensed lifeguard. I knew CPR. I was well-trained. It did not even dawn on me to do CPR on my father. It did not even dawn on me. So later, when that did dawn on me, you can imagine some of the guilt that came from that. Even though doctors said it would have made no difference, it was massive, he was probably gone before he hit the floor, um, et cetera. Um, and then the second thing was nodding in agreement to turn off machines to terminate my father's life. So those two things I really had to work through. There's such a thing called delayed get grief, as we might guess. All that is, in my opinion, sometimes it's because we're too young and we're not, or we're not physically and emotionally capable of handling it at the moment. So what do our hearts and minds do? They wall it off. And it sits there and it waits. And then when the time comes where we are open to dealing with it, it's not like we make a choice to deal with it. It's like our hearts somehow know and it, our hearts begin to go, hey, knock, 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 knock. You, you've got this in here that you need to deal with. Uh, if you don't deal with it now, it's going to fester. We've just been holding it here, <laughs> keep, keep keeping it at bay. That actually, I'm bouncing around here, but that actually happened in my late 30s. When all of a sudden I began having panic attacks and that led to a visit with a counselor friend I knew very well. And within practically 10 minutes, he said, do you feel responsible for your dad's death? Wow. And and I looked at him and I went, no, that's that's what it was. I got the N out, but the O would not come out of my mouth. Mm. And then he said, well, there we have it. Wow. And and we began to deal with, with that. So what happened after that wasn't any prettier. Um, we buried my dad. My mom got out of psychiatric care, moved into the apartment my dad and I lived in. It wasn't any better before. In fact, it, she was she was not stable. Uh, she made a suicide attempt and wound back up in psychiatric care. At, at that point, this is sad, but I think I was numb. I think I had shut off a part of my heart because my attitude then, and at that time, when my dad died, I was 15. By this time, I was pushing 16. But uh, I said, it's like I said, well, fine. Fine. Uh, okay. And I just kept living. I had a job. I was on the swim team, very involved in my high school. Uh, I had no time to get into trouble thankfully. And uh, the end result of all of that was about six weeks later, 
a family that I had known from swimming. They had four kids. Uh, their oldest son was one of my best friends. They came to me and they asked me to come live with them. So I said, well, I've got nowhere to go. There were no papers signed. There were no arrangements made. It was just, they just took me in. And I lived the last three years of high school with them. And when I walked into their home, they had this huge chocolate cake on the counter in the kitchen. And it said, welcome home. Mm. And that family, not to discredit my family at all, Rob, but uh, that family was so different from the family I was raised in. The big difference were was uh, all those people in that household knew, loved, and followed Jesus Christ. And so I knew Jesus, but I didn't really know how to follow him. And as a result of being in their home, I got to experience firsthand his love for me in that way. And so... Um, it really changed the trajectory of my life. I, those three years, without those three years, you take those away and I don't know who I would be or where I would be because at about 17 in their household, I can remember saying to myself one day, okay, I'm under no illusions that this life is gonna be easier smooth. I've been hit and I've been hit again. And so I'm expecting to get hit again, but I don't wanna live in fear of getting hit again. And so I want to learn how to handle the losses to come. And not just that, but if I can handle them in such a way that I can turn them around and use them for good, not just for me, but for other people, I have to learn how to do that. I mean, it was just a drive that, so that launched me onto a lifelong journey, I think, of healing both in high school and then in college. And then uh, from college, I went to seminary um, and uh, was trained as a missionary. And uh, after that, I, I spent five years in Japan as a church planting missionary. Before that, I was in college ministry. And then after uh, the missionary stint in Japan, I was a pastor for two plus decades. And then I worked in hospice for 12 years. Uh, as a hospice chaplain and, and grief and grief counselor. And so we can look at all that. And I wish I could say, oh, yeah, the rest of my life's been easy. But no, there have been loss. There's been loss after loss after loss after loss. A couple of them in particular devastating after uh, my teen years that really knocked my feet out from under me for a while. Um, but I guess if you look at that, it's no surprising that it's not surprising I wound up spending most of my time helping hurting, grieving people heal and grow uh, because that helps me heal and grow. Uh, it's a mutual thing. It's it's not an accident that I've got seven adopted kids, you know, after somebody took me in and it, it just became as natural as natural could be. But the key in all of it for me was Jesus Christ, learning to walk with him because I always knew. I cannot do this by myself. And the help of other people around me, well, they're as limited as I am. And we all have these pretty severe limitations. We have a lot of influence. We don't control hardly anything. And I thought, I need, some, I need someone way beyond who knows, who gets it, who's been there, and is all wise and all knowing and can guide me through this not perfectly, because I'm not going to get it perfectly, but 
in such a way that I'm able to live out my mission here, which I think is really to help hurting people heal and grow. So that's a long-winded, um, uh, the, the big, as you can tell, because from age 17 on, I fit that in about that much and before. So, but I, I think my first 17 years really set me up. Um, you could say they could have set me up for a life of disaster and addiction and, and all of those other things, which they did. But luckily that didn't take place because, because of Jesus Christ in my life. Uh, it set me up for something else. It set me up for healing, growth, and walking with people who are hurting and grieving, because guess what? Everybody is. And if they tell you they're not, they're lying. It's just how deep is their current pain? How deep is their current fear? How deep is their current grief? Because all of us are dealing with it all the time now, I think. Yeah, wow. Thank, thank you for sharing that with me. You you do such a fantastic job of diving into your story. And there is a lot there in about a thousand different directions I'd like to go. <laughs> uh, first, though, I, I want to thank you mm -hmm. for being so brave and open about your experience um, with, with sexual abuse as a child. Um, it's something I experienced as well that I've been pretty open about on other podcasts. And you know, I've, I've found this power that comes with being able to share that. And the power there is the ability to connect with others who have been through it, who may not have a voice in the fight. Um, and just through being open about my experience, I've had conversations primarily with other men who have been through similar experiences uh, as children and very unfortunately conditioned to keep that as tightly bottled up as they can. Yes. Um, so I really wanted to take a minute to hone in on that and how important that is to me. So thank you for sharing that with me you're, and with us today. You're you're welcome. And if it's OK, I'm going to dive into that a little bit. If it's, please, please do. Um, I think I call it the conspiracy of silence um, that surrounds this thing. That is what gives this evil its power. Mm. And um, well, part of what gives this evil its power uh, I have a friend who has also been through this, and his comment is that sexual abuse is the gift that just keeps on giving. Mm. And um, really, a key part of healing from sexual abuse is the willingness to dig deep inside, to muster up the courage. If we don't have it, God, give me the courage to break the conspiracy of silence. Now, what is that? That means we just have to start talking about it. And we can't worry about the results. Like, how's so-and-so gonna respond if I mention this? Or how are they going to think of me now if, um, because we will talk ourselves into silence every time, because it is a conspiracy of silence. And I know that you've probably experienced this too, Rob, um, I, uh, the first time I shared my story, one of the first times publicly was at a writer's conference in a small group. There were six of us. I had a guy sitting next to me and then there were uh, about five ladies and they're all around the table. And when I shared just what I shared with you that, you know, I, 
I lost chunks of my childhood because I was sexually abused. The guy next to me pushed his chair back away from me. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was it was almost immediate. Mm. And uh, I thought, okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that hurt. It was scary. But what happened after that small group met was I had three of those ladies come up to me, lined up, and they said, thank you for your courage. Me too. Thank you for your courage. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. And it's just like anything else. The more we speak, the more other people are empowered to speak. And uh, this conspiracy of silence, this is how we fight it. We, we fight it just by speaking about it. We don't need to be graphic. We don't need to be detailed. We just need to um, be honest and to be real. And when we do, good things happen. Although for me personally, Rob, I don't know what it was like for you. It was freeing, but I had to deal with shame every time, almost immediately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, if I'm still dealing with shame, I don't feel it. You know, maybe I am. Uh, maybe it's still there, but oh boy. So the more I talk about it, just in these little instances, um, I, I don't even know how to say it, the less hold it has on me. That's absolutely been my experience as well. And with the shame for me, that's kind of like a shadow, the mm. brighter of a light that I shine on it, the less that it's there. And for me, shining that light has been putting it out there in the open. And as you detailed, it doesn't always go well or feel good. The first time I ever shared with anybody about my experience was with a therapist who very quickly told me that because what I experienced was with a peer, with someone my own age, it wasn't abuse. It mm -hmm. was experimentation is what she called it. And I just knew that, no, that is not at all what my experience was. This was not something I willingly engaged in. I remember very vividly the feeling after it happening of just being terrified and realizing that something wrong had happened. And then each time thereafter, when it happened, the just the sheer terror that I felt. Um, so I had to, that, that put me right back into silence. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm wrong. I maybe... Maybe what I experienced is not what I thought. Um, and then I, I was telling my story. Uh, I'm, I'm part of a few different 12-step recovery groups. And I was sharing my story at one of my groups. And I don't know where it came from. I was talking about my childhood, uh, talking about my experience with my family of origin. And next thing I knew, I was sharing this experience of being sexually abused as a child. It's not something I planned on talking about. It just... I, I was called to share about it in that moment. And almost immediately, the shame was insurmountable. I'm like, I cannot believe I said that to these people. These people know me. I'm going to have to look them in the face after this. And afterwards, three three gentlemen came up to me and same experience. Me too. I've never shared that with another person. Thank you for sharing that today. And that was all I needed to hear. That's yeah. when it clicked for me that, okay, not only can I share about this? I am supposed to share about this and I am going to share about this. Yes. Um, so that was a little bit of a, a segue from what I thought we'd talk about today, but very important, I think, for mm -hmm. us to spend some time mm -hmm. talking about that. And when you were talking about your story and your experience losing your friend, uh, Jeff, as, as a child, 
you talked about the blanking out, which just really resonated with me. I had the experience about probably about six months after losing my dad. Um, I had my own mental breakdown and left North Carolina, went back to New Jersey to stay at my mother's house and was really in the deepest depression I've ever experienced. The grief that I was running away from and stuffing down with substances for about six months has, had finally caught up with me. And I remember very vividly the day that I realized what I was feeling was grief. Um, my mom left for work in the morning. I wasn't working at the time. I got up, it was probably about nine o'clock in the morning, and I went and sat on the couch. Just was going to sit there, think about what to do with my day. And no joke, next thing I knew, the door was opening. My mom was coming home from work. Mm. I sat there for eight hours mm. and it went by like that. Mm. It terrified me first and foremost to realize that I was like pretty much catatonic for a whole day. But for me, that was my body forcing me to sit with what I'd been running away from and looking it right in the face and realizing that I can take it on. And I think that is so important for us to realize when we are facing what feels like insurmountable grief for the first time is having the realization that I can do this. I can do this because for me, that was the first step in turning the corner and approaching it in a different way. So yes. I, I would like to use that to maybe dive into how, how you would um, help someone who is still in that stuck place, someone who still doesn't quite know how to take on the grief that's in front of them, what would you tell them um, that may help them start to turn that corner? I think, I think the big thing, well, there's, there's lots of big things. This is so massive. Um, the, the first thing is that um, I think sometimes we can get stuck just because we don't know what to do. Um, other times we can be stuck because it's just so painful that it feels like it has its in its it has us in its vice and that there's nothing that we can do. I, I think the one of the biggest decisions we can make is the decision that you made that suddenly you realized, oh, I can lean into this or I, I can do this. Uh, I, I think there's a point at which everyone who does heal and grow through grief makes a decision somewhere. Um, that we can't point to maybe this day or that day or whatever, but an internal decision that says, I choose to work through this and heal. Mm. I, cho I choose to do that. Um, or we, we could say uh, something like even a step further, uh, I choose to heal, grow and use this for good. I throw that in there because at least in my own personal experience, and with the people that I work with in grief, and there have been thousands of them, that I would say, wow, they they did really well. G given what was going on here and their life situation and everything, they really healed, grew, and uh, inevitably, one of the keys is every single one of them found a way to use their grief and pain for good for other people. And um, just like you're doing on this podcast, for instance, that's exactly what you're doing. Um, so the choice to heal and grow through this and turn it around and use it for good. 
I think that's an important choice to make, even if you're at a point where you say that's impossible. Yeah, yeah that's impossible. Uh, no, it feels impossible. That's different from it is impossible. And that's a big thing, too. I know this little rabbit trail is making a distinction be between it feels this way. But the reality is this, because you see, we say it feels impossible, but yet I can say it feels impossible. But if you asked me, gee, do you know anybody who's been through a lot who's turned it around and use it for good? And I would say, oh, yeah, there are people. Oh, so I get it. This applies just to you. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah. no. So uh, there's the way we feel. And then there's the way things really are. Feelings are meant to be felt, but they're not meant to drive our lives necessarily. No, they're not meant to drive our lives, period. So, um, so that's the first thing I would say, a choice to heal and grow. The second thing is beginning to put tools in your grief tool belt. Since we referenced the grief tool belt, we'll just, yep. or if yep. a toolbox makes more sense to you, if you're listening, okay. Um, now, what are some of those tools? Um, well, they, they can be a lot of things. So here we go. Um, deep breathing is a tool. It's a simple tool that anybody can do. It just has a few requirements. In through the nose, out through the mouth. That activates your parasympathetic nervous system and sends a message to your brain. Everything's okay here. While you, when your brain is going, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. But in, in through your nose, out through your mouth. Or as an ENT friend of mine says, smell the roses, blow out the candles. Mm. Smell the roses, blow out the candles. Smell the roses, blow out the candles. A simple method of practicing deep breathing once a day for one minute can set a habit for you so that when you're really grieving, you suddenly remember, oh, I can deep breathe. I, I, I can breathe. I, I can deep breathe. We can breathe our way through anxiety. We can breathe our way. Uh, it's just flat, simple. Why does that work? Oxygen. So when we're grieving, we don't know this, but when we're stressed, we hyperventilate on a very small level unknown to us. And we're slowly depriving our system of oxygen. And so needless to say, that doesn't help. <laughs> that, yep. doesn't, that doesn't help anything of what's going on. So we reverse that. And I think it's a God-given simple technique to reverse that and just simply deep breathing. Secondly, um, there we have to begin to talk get the grief out. Let's just put it that way. If you just focus on how can I get the grief out? How can I get the grief out? Well, I can talk it out. I can write it out uh, in a journal or on, on paper, et cetera. Uh, I can art it out or build it out or anything. But for most people, talking and writing are the two biggies. So let's just focus there for a minute. Uh, talking out loud to yourself, which sounds kind of weird, but it really does work. Because when we speak out loud what's going on in our minds and hearts, what happens is it slows our minds and hearts down enough to actually begin to process this because otherwise we're spinning and we're just spinning and it, we're, we're just spinning and it doesn't go anywhere. So what does talking out loud mean? It would be something like this. Oh, I'm feeling anxious. You know, I'm, I'm feeling anxious. And, you know, I'm feeling anxious. What was I just thinking about? Uh, I was using my own experience. 
I was just uh, driving because I'm now in the town that I grew up in. I was just driving past the cemetery where my dad is buried. And that took me right back to that Sunday afternoon in the apartment when my dad dropped in front of me. And so no wonder I'm feeling anxious. And then I begin to deep breathe a little bit and it's processed, not fully, but you know, it, those simple things like that. So getting the grief out by yourself personally, because it's always safe with just you. Yeah. Secondly, getting it out with somebody you trust. Everybody needs at least one safe person in their life. Uh, now, what's a safe person? Uh, they have this capacity to shut up <laughs> and to listen and to just be with you as you suffer, basically, as you grieve. They don't try to fix you. Uh, they don't give advice you haven't asked for. And, you know, as I go through that list, most people are going, I don't know anybody like that. Well, well, you, you know, just keep in mind, nobody's safe all the time. OK, we're all human. We all blow it. I blow it. Um, but there's some people that are mostly safe. And especially if you go to a mostly safe person and you say, I just need to talk about my dad. And, and what happened there? I don't want any feedback. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want any. There are no answers that will be good for me right now. I just need to talk. Would you let me just talk? Would you be willing to just listen? And that can be one way that, that you can do that. Another way is finding other safe people. There, there are safe people. Well, other people that are grieving they're very important because they get it, you know. Now, some of them aren't safe. Some of them will give you advice and try to fix you and correct everything too. But at least they get it. You know, they're going through pain and loss. And as a result of that, that has softened some of them. They've had people try to fix them and they've decided, I'm not going to do that to anybody else. And so they become safe people in our lives. Um, so a grief support group, I won't say it's a fix-all. And people say, well, is that for everybody? Um, now, I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm going to say, yeah, it is. Now, why do I say that? I say, well, because we're made for relationship. That's why. And we're made for connection. But there's a timing to things. And sometimes we just know we're not ready. We're just not ready for that. So I think there is the decision to, to heal and grow. There is uh, deep breathing, which is very important, more important. And I, and I keep mentioning that. Why? Because anybody can do it and it's easy. Um, the next thing is getting the grief out individually by yourself, talking it out, writing it out, then involving other people somehow, a safe person, a support group, maybe a counselor, maybe a grief professional, a grief coach, um, I think those things, if you put them together, uh, are very, very helpful. Plus, and then there's all these layers of support that, Rob, you and I provide, you know, listening to podcasts, reading a book, um, going to like my website. I have a bunch of free material on there that you can download directly to your computer. There's an email course. There's a couple of ebooks. Um, you know, they're just those little things. Everybody needs layers of support. If we put all of our hope 
for example, in our one safe person, and we're just going to talk to them and we're not going to do anything else. That's a little unfair. That's putting a lot of pressure on somebody to be your savior, you know, and um, nobody's going to live up to that billing. I can guarantee you they're going to disappoint you. And then because they, they're not God, they can't. um, So those are some of the things that immediately come to mind. Yeah, those, those are all great. And I love how actionable they are. If someone's listening to this today, they can walk away and try any, any one of those things. I'd like to dive into each one of them a little deeper because uh, I know for me, at least I am a skeptic by nature. It's one of my least favorite qualities about myself and one that I've spent a lot of time working through. Maybe maybe you're just discerning. (laughs) Let's, Let's go with that. It sounds better. Uh, when it comes to deep breathing specifically, that's something that has been a tool that's been suggested to me for at least a decade um, in different forms of therapy, um, just hearing it in different podcasts. There are so many uh, experiencing it through my studies of Buddhism and deep breathing and meditation. Um, it's just something that is constantly uh, reiterated as being of paramount importance and, and usefulness. And for probably about half of that decade, I rolled my eyes. I'm like, there is no way that me sitting here doing something that I do constantly every day is going to help me at all. I'm not going to do that. That's silly to me. Um, I tend to get really stuck in a rational mindset and I'm just like, that's not going to work for me. I'm not going to do that. And then when I finally became open to at least try, I don't think I was willing for it to work. So it it didn't, it didn't didn't work. work. Yeah. Um, And now it's one of the first things that I turn to Uh, before every podcast episode, I sit there and I do a breathing exercise. When I'm having a stressful day, I do some deep breathing. When I'm struggling to lean into a meditation, I'm like, all right, let me do some square breathing. Mm -hmm. So I do want to dive a little bit deeper into some breathing techniques, um, but you, you hit on something that has been so important for me, which is talking it out. Mm-hmm. There are a few people in my life that I'm thinking about as we do this episode, um, as as I think about them and where they are in their own grief journey. And I, I think about what talking it out was like for me, specifically around the loss of my father. Mm-hmm. You know, before my dad, I lost, I lost quite a few folks who were really important to me. My grandfather, some aunts and uncles, a friend, a very close friend. Um, but the the loss of my dad is the one that completely plugged me up. I, I, I didn't know what to do with it. So I chose to put it on a shelf. And it was around that same time frame I was talking about earlier, about six months after where I was in this deep depression. Um, I was just profoundly stuck. And I remember one day doing what I was doing pretty often at that time, thinking, trying to think my way out of it. What the heck is wrong with me? What is going on? How do I get out of this? And I remember saying out loud, and I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of putting this in a public forum, but I said, I miss my freaking dad. Yeah. And just saying that out loud, like started to crack off some of that ice that was like surrounding my heart. It just, I miss my freaking dad. And saying that out loud is what 
enabled me to accept, okay, I need to, I need to spend some time looking at this, mm-hmm. uh, my relationship with this grief and my new relationship with my dad, since he's not here in the physical realm. And that opened me up to the first person I talked to was my best friend. We, we didn't talk a lot about my dad after he died because I felt it was too heavy or it was a burden. Mm. And I remember him and I were sitting around in the living room one day. We lived together at the time. I said, hey, man, could we talk about my dad? And he was like, of course, of course we can. And it just uh, I remember just that weight being lifted off that like I realized there was space for me to talk about this thing. And it's been right here the whole time. And I was just too afraid to use it. So that was step two. Step one was like talking to myself. Step two was talking to John. Step three was I was able to talk to a therapist about it. And that is something that I harp on probably too much in my own life, especially with my close friends who are men, because I think as men, we're at a disadvantage for dealing with complicated emotions and states of being like grief. Um, And for me, Without therapy, there's no shot. I am anywhere close to where I am today. Mm. So that was the third step. And that's kind of catapulted me to being where I find myself now, which is on this fourth step, which is the ability to talk to my dad again. And sometimes that's me muttering to myself, just like having a conversation with him, asking him things I would ask him. Uh, More often lately, it's been physically writing to him. I found that to be very helpful. The first episode uh, we did uh, was with Dr. David Treadway. And Dr. Treadway shared just about the importance of continuing the conversation with our lost loved ones. Mm. Regarding any loss, I find it's incredibly important around suicide loss as well, because there are so many questions that I have for him and so many things that frankly will never be answered. And I've had to accept that but I've found a way to at least ask. And sometimes I get an answer, which for me shows up as intuition. I think some people will, uh, some people will experience that as a connection with a higher power or connection with God. Um, for me, it's been this, just this deep intuitive feeling of knowing that it's a message that I'm getting from my dad. And that's been pretty cool. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, that sense of comfort that I get knowing that like I can still have a relationship with my dad, mm-hmm. that is what has catapulted me into a new dimension uh, when it comes to the grief that I felt around his loss. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about the deep breathing and, and the talking it out. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to pause there for a second to see if there's anything that, that came up for you before I ask my next question. You know, I'm thank you, Rob. I'm I'm glad you shared that those things have been so significant for you. I think everyone that goes through, um, I'll just say a significant amount of healing, consistently, these are the things that make the difference. Um, consistently, they're all kind of they're talking about it, they're they're writing about it, they're um <clears throat> and one thing that you said, several things, it brings several things to mind. Just the importance of having space, we could call it margin, uh, proactively setting aside some time, getting a little silence and solitude, because that's scary for us in grief, because 
we live in the midst of a world that we're slowly teaching ourselves or quickly teaching ourselves to be very uncomfortable with our own thoughts. You mm. know, see, I, I still work out almost daily, you know, I'm a competitive athlete from way back when. So that's just natural for me. And I can be out here on the street and watch people run by and they've all got earbuds in. And, uh, cyclists by and I hear their music blaring and um, see just for me that's inconceivable because it's like this time is a time for my brain to go (laughs) and for a a time for things to just kind of go and and let let things settle Um, and and I get frightened for other people that they're they wake up in the morning and turn on a screen or wake up in the morning and turn on a radio or wake up in the, and they have, uh, I don't know how someone could really know themselves at all with being around voices that are constant and continual. And all of those voices have messages. And so the silence and solitude and just, taking the time a little here and there to wait a minute is huge. Uh, the other thing that it brought to mind is I have this illustration and please understand. I mean, I know you know this, that all illustrations have their limit. They're just illustrations. But with with grief, I, I view as each person has a grief reservoir inside them. And it's raining on that reservoir all the time. Um, sometimes it's just mist. Sometimes let's just say it's precipitating on the reservoir. Sometimes it's just mist. Sometimes it's a drizzle. Sometimes it's a few drops. Sometimes it's a sprinkle. Sometimes it's rain. Sometimes it's a thunderstorm. Sometimes it's a flash flood. Sometimes it feels like a tsunami, but, um, it's always precipitating on our grief reservoir. Well, what is it with reservoirs? You know, reservoirs, have dams. Dams have spillways that they have ways to open up to allow water to flow out in a way that is not destructive. Whereas if it builds up to a certain point and flows out as a result of a flash flood, it can be destructive, uh, not just in nature, but in our lives. And so often I say, just make sure you keep your grief spillways open. Just make sure you have avenues to get the grief out. Keep talking. Keep talking to yourself. Keep talking to other people. Talk to anybody who will listen. Go to a support group. Uh, go to go to a, you know, get it out any way you can. We'll all have those grief bursts that come that feel like a sudden missile out of the blue where boom, and the grief, especially when the grief is raw, Uh, when it's just on us all at once. It gets triggered by something and we have this sudden wave of emotion. We're going to have those no matter what in some shape, form, or fashion. But the more we keep our grief spillways open, the I guess the more we process what's happening to us, the more we realize how important this person is to us, was to us, uh, the more we're able to express that. Uh, and our hearts can heal and grow as a result of that. And it can be so huge. So just keeping the grief spillways open is a big deal. I, I love that illustration. 
Yeah, that that definitely resonates with me. And, and you talked about the importance of sitting in solitude. That's something that has been very challenging for me. I think I fall in the category of the individual you describe, headphones in, screen in hand. And I've been taking intentional strides to learn to sit with discomfort. Hmm. And I think that's been one of the most important lessons I've taken away from facing grief or really facing any difficult state of being is I have to be okay being uncomfortable. Yes. And the cool thing is there are a lot of tools out there that allow me to be uncomfortable. And one of those tools is do nothing. I don't have to do a single thing, but just sit. So for me, that's taken the form of meditation. Uh, recently, in the last few months, has taken the form of prayer every morning. And I think it's 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 so uh, enlightening for me to be able to have this conversation with you because we are at much different places in our journey. Uh, you with God, me with trying to find what is a higher power in my life. And the cool thing is I don't have to, I don't think I have to have it figured out. Mm. I just know that when I sit down and pray in the morning, when mm. I sit down and, and thank my concept of a higher power for, for me keeping me sober and asking for help making the right choices throughout my day, I, I do find a certain amount of serenity that comes along with it. And I just wanted to plug this because it's something I've been curious about for years and I finally did it in the last month. Uh, for Christmas, my partner, uh, she got me um, an appointment to uh, sit in a float tank or a sensory deprivation tank, which is something I've wanted to do for almost a decade. And I've been too afraid because that is the ultimate sitting with yourself. Uh, and for me, it was an hour and a half in complete darkness. I mean, you can't tell whether your eyes are opened or closed and absolute stunning silence. And you are floating in a pool that has a thousand pounds of salt dissolved in it. So you float right at the top of the water and it's the exact temperature of the surface of your skin. So after lying there for a few minutes, you don't even feel like you're in water anymore. You feel like you're floating in, in space and time. Hmm. And for the first half hour or so, I don't know. I don't know how long it was. It was wildly uncomfortable. I couldn't settle into it. I, my body was tense. My mind was racing. I was thinking about all the things I should be doing instead of floating in this salty water, all the things I had to do when I got out of there. And then at some point I just locked in and I don't, again, don't know how long I was there, but for me, it was the deepest state of meditation I've ever accomplished. And man, what a, what a feeling. Hmm. And I think that, you know, that's a cool tool that's out there, but that's something we can uh, replicate in our day-to-day -day life. I'm a big proponent of taking baths. I take a bath probably every day <laughs> and that's time for me to just exist, sit there, deal with whatever comes up and not do what's natural for me, which is distract myself. Yes. You know, thank you for bringing up the whole, um, we have this idea that if it's comfortable, it's good. And um, if we really think about that idea, we'll realize very quickly, oh, that's not always the case. Um, and if we really look at all of our lives and we say, what are the points in my life where I feel like I really grew and took steps forward or leapt forward? 
number one, it was always hard. Number two, it was always uncomfortable in, in some shape, form, or fashion. We have our default as human beings seems to be <laughs> to um, want things to be smooth, but they're never smooth. The world is not smooth. And so then we're left with, well, then it's about the condition of my heart. It's, it's about my soul because this thing out here, uh, I have no control over. And so um, it, gosh, so much good comes from a sort of deliberate uncomfortability. I don't think we grow much without that. And because uh, uh, I know that for me, um, I have boomeranged back and forth in my life from being, you know, as a pastor and as a missionary and you just name it. I very busy guy, you know, busy, yeah. busy, 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 busy. And then then all of a sudden I'll wake up, you know, periodically and say, what in the world am I doing? I I yeah, good things are being accomplished. But now, wait a minute. Uh, if I believe, like for in my case, that life is all about knowing Jesus and about walking with him, you know, I look at good portions of the Bible that do not say anything like fill your life with activity. Go, 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 go. Right, right. It, it, you know, instead it is words like walk with me, learn from me, experience me experience my love for you and let me live in and through you and to accomplish the mission and purpose for which you were created in the first place. And I began to say, okay, we all have a diff, we're all different. So what kind of pace does my life need? Do I need in order not just to stay sane, but uh, in order to be balanced in or whatever that is um in order to really be who i think god has created me to be and do what he has created me to do uh, because it's just all too easy to i guess set our schedules by what the world tells us is valuable and all of those other things that frankly most of them and we could get into this i think they're lies but yeah that, that's a whole other that's a whole other subject, but it's really not because when we begin to be suicidal or when we have real difficulty in life, we can usually ask ourselves, now wait a minute, what lies am I believing right now? Um, and believe believe is not just what lies I'm believing here intellectually. I only know what I believe by looking at my life. That's what I really believe. Whatever I'm living out, that's what I really believe. And I can intellectually believe some things that I can't live out yet, right? Right. And but hopefully I I I will. So it's a, a so much of life, I think, is beginning to recognize the lies that we have bought into, that we've told ourselves, that other people have told us, that the world has told us, and begin to say, wait, whoa, 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 what's the truth here about me, about the world? Uh, about other people, about God, what is the truth, and begin to live according to the truth, exchanging the lies for the truth. 
And grief is a part of that too, because we tend to believe myths and lies as we go along, which is, oh, I thought this was going to be over by now. Or, gee, I thought this was going to be so different. Or, oh, I thought grief was bad. Or any other of the other myths that we can believe along the way. Yeah, very well said. And I feel like I could talk to you about this for a day straight and still not get to ask all the questions that I'd like to ask you. But there's one that's been in the back of my mind as we've been talking and now feels like a good time to bring it up. Mm. It's something I know you've touched on in at least one of your books. Um, And it's something that came up for me, which was pretty interesting at the time being a non-believer as someone who did not believe in God. Mm. Um, And it's something that has come up on multiple podcast episodes. And it's, I think, one of, if not the most common question that comes up when we lose someone, but especially when we lose someone to suicide or in a traumatic, tragic way, the question, how could God let this happen? And I, I feel like you're the perfect person to have this conversation with. And I'm, I'm really curious what your take is on that question regarding loss specifically. Oh, boy. Um, thanks a lot, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> but um, seriously, this is the question, isn't it? It's, it's one of the biggies. So first of all, if we just tell ourselves this, that no intellectual answer, no answer to this question is going to be satisfying emotionally to us. Mm. Okay. Let's just, let's just agree on that from the get go that no matter what answer I give you, it is not going to cause you to go, Oh, well, thank goodness. And, and you'll, that's not the way this works. Um, That's because this is inherently complicated. Our hearts are complicated. Uh, Death is complicated. Um, Death is complicated because we're relational beings, because we're complicated. And that means a separation of sorts. And that's complicated because that rubs all of us the wrong way. And it should, because we're designed for connection. So having said that, um, here's my answer. it's not, it's not really an answer, but okay. How could God allow this to happen? I'm glad we use the word allow because, you know, rather than how could God do this? Because those are, those are two very, very different things. Right. Uh, here's if God created, okay. The biblical answer would be something like God creates us in his image, but he does not create us to be robots. He creates us in his image and there here's the free will thing and how free is our will and all of that. But we certainly have a will. We make decisions and we make choices. Uh, If we say, do I have a free will? Well, we could say, no, our will is never actually free ever because it's always influenced by the things that are going on around us and the messages that we're given and all of that. So we make decisions in this context of what's going on around us and in the world and what we believe in all of that. So um, God creates us with this will that includes with it this amazing capacity to receive love and to give love and to do the opposite. I mean, we could, right? Um, and so uh, since we're not robots, that 
since we have this capacity, that inherently puts us in a world where terrible things happen because things are broken. People are broken. Systems are broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, thoughts are broken. Societies are broken. You can just look at, sometimes you can just walk around and look at, a, look at uh, we, we don't look at newspapers anymore, uh, look at the news and we can say broken, 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 right? Broken. Well, we tell ourselves in a broken world, broken things happen. Here's what doesn't make sense. In a broken world, good things happen. Mm. That doesn't make sense. Mm. So how does that happen? Well, that happens because I believe we're created in the image of God. So we have this capacity within us, again, to love and to be loved. And, And so... The result of that is we all make choices. We're all influenced by the brokenness that is going on around us. And sometimes for some people, that brokenness is so heavy mixed with the personal choices that they make along the way. But sometimes the missiles are so great that are being fired at them where some people run a white flag up and in despair or loss of hope or loss of meaning or uh, any other th- any other thing, um, they make a choice. Or we could say, was it totally their choice? Well, that's just like asking, was it free will? Because they're still surrounded by all these influences and all these messages. By the way, when we hear a message that really sinks in with us, I think it always speaks to us. Messages like, I'll never be good enough. I'm worthless. I'll never be a man. I'm small. You know, you Mm. name it, whatever, whatever the messages are. And when we're stressed and when we don't see or we can't have, don't have the capacity to see or choose not to see the good around us, what begins to shout louder are those messages that are ingrained in us. So how can God allow this to happen? I would say these things happen in the midst of a very broken world. Broken things happen in the midst of a very broken world. What God does is he is busy supplying hope and supplying um, love to those who are just now. Now, then I know that opens up a whole lot of questions. Well, well, what about my loved one? And they were really um, right, right. and we can't have those personal conversations on this podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we could otherwise. But um, so huh, I, I think suicide ought to show us, above all other things, perhaps, just how broken our world is, how broken mm-hmm. the systems are, how broken... Uh, things are and challenge us to no matter what our answer is to that question to challenge us to say well are we just going to go with that are we just going to go with this brokenness and go with these broken systems and uh, or are we going to be different are are we going to decide to be different to be um, there's a there's an internet TV show out there right now that some listeners may have heard of called The Chosen. Uh, it's about the life of Jesus. But anyway, the graphic, 
it's just about the graphic that that show starts out with. It's it's all of these gray fish swimming in a circle in a school. And then comes this one turquoise fish the other direction, the teal fish. This It's teal. The other direction, all these gray fish, all these gray. Of course, you get it after you watch the show. Okay, that's Jesus, you know. And then, whoop. One of these fish turns around and switches from gray to teal and begins to follow. And then another fish and then another fish and another fish. But even with that, there is this flow of gray, the brokenness, right? But there's people swimming against, choosing to swim against the brokenness. And in this case, following Jesus. We all have a choice in front of us about whether we're going to be part of the gray and just go with the flow of this brokenness or whether we're going to dare to swim upstream, to heal, to, to ourselves heal and grow through this so that we can make a difference. Some other people might notice and turn into teal fish and follow us. Um, because the world, this is, I'm normally an optimist, Rob. In fact, I'm very much an optimist, but I'm trying to be a, a realist too, is that this world is a broken world, and this world is not going to get better. Mm. That's my prediction. Mm. Um, so what does that mean? That means we have to get better. Mm. <laughs> That's what that means. I could moan about the world all day long. What good does that do? We have to get better, and we have to be the difference makers. We have to be the ones that heal and grow and begin to overcome. I'll use that word, but I'm going to define it as, you know, we deal with our stuff by overcoming means I don't let that control me and define my life. Yeah. I don't let the brokenness control me and define my life. That's it. Um, so I don't know where this this part of the conversation started, Rob, because <laughs> we got so, but uh, so I'll just shut up because I'm, I'm realizing I don't know what to say next. So I'll be quiet. You absolutely <laughs> hit on what I was hoping you would. Um, and you provided me with a lot of insight that I was hoping to, to, to garner from this conversation. And uh, two things came up for me. One, I love that you use the word broken to describe the world because I've, I've used the same word as well. Uh, I think maybe from more of a negative connotation, but when you said it, what I was thinking is I was thinking when something's broken in my home, like if my TV is broken, I, I have a choice with that, right? Yeah. I can deal with a broken TV. Mm -hmm. I can throw it away and get a new TV, or I can make the choice to try to fix it. And I apologize if you, you're getting any background noise there. I have a contractor sawing some stuff outside. I can't hear that. Um, okay, cool. <laughs> And I think that's the choice each one of us has individually that you described by, by the teal fish is the decision to fix or the choice to fix. And then you touched on something that I find fascinating in general and would like to put the prompt out there for maybe, us, maybe for us to be able to sit down again with this as the central theme, which is the idea of free will versus determinism. Hmm. And where I find it especially fascinating is around suicide and the choice that someone makes to take their own life. Um, and it's something I've thought a lot about and just you touching on the idea of free will. 
Um, I wanted to throw that over the fence to you. I'd love to be able to sit down and maybe talk a little bit further about that because it is something that I think is heavily debated is how much choice is there when, when someone takes their own life versus how much are they kind of pushed down that path? Um, so curious about your thoughts on that, but for this conversation, um, I only have a, a couple other things that I'd like to ask to feel like be able to be able to round this out nicely without taking up five hours of your time, which I feel like I easily could, um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And then after this, just have one planned question for you. Hmm. Um, I, I know you have a project, uh, that you call the suicide prevention project. And I believe there are a couple book series that go along with it. Uh, the Difference Maker series and the Living on the Edge series. Uh, it just felt pertinent to, to this conversation and to this podcast as a whole. It was hoping you could maybe explain this project a little bit, uh, these series a little bit, and how this could be a resource to someone who uh, has either lost a loved one to suicide or is dealing with their own suicidal intensity. Mm. It's really, um, the, the good thing is, is this is just so simple. I mean, the this project, it's, uh, I thought, um, and this, this grew out of uh, really, Rob, doing about um, a dozen suicide funerals in a period of two years, um, where now, having said that, um, these were not people I knew personally. I, as a hospice chaplain, I do a lot of funerals. And so the funeral directors are very familiar with me and they tend to call me when the person doesn't have pastoral support or they don't have anybody to do the service. And it's a tough one. In other words, it's a suicide or a car accident or an infant or something like that. And so all of a sudden over a two year period, I did 12 uh, suicide funerals and, you know, it got to where I would pick up the phone and he would say, well, Gary, and that's all he would say. And I knew we had another um, and, and dealing, not dealing, but getting the honor to interact with those families after that. Oh my goodness. Um, and then finally, a friend of mine, actually a doctor of mine, um, his 19-year-old son committed suicide. And that's that's when mm. I that's when I drew the line. I said, I gotta do something. I have to do something. And I thought, what do I do? I write. I write and I speak. So I can I can write. I now have enough anyway. And what what came out were these four books. Um, let's just say two books. One is called Living on the Edge, and the other one is Difference Maker. And there is there in a there's an adult version of these two books, and there's a teen version of these two books. Um, the language, the books are exactly the same. The language is just a little different. That's it. Okay. Uh, Living on the Edge is a very small book. It's about forty pages long. It's designed for people who to read. You could probably read it in twenty minutes. Um, it says we're all living on the edge, all of us, whether whether we know it or not. It very quickly gets into, let's talk about suicide. Now, you know, people don't talk about it, so let's just talk about it. Um, and the theme of that book is that what leads us down dark paths are really 
lies that we believe. That's a big thing that leads us down those paths. What are some of the lies that most people believe? And what is the truth? So that's that little book. Difference Maker was written as kind of, you know, if you read Living on the Edge and you go, oh, I, I want more of this, you know, then it would be Difference Maker. Living on the Edge is just recognizing we're living on the edge and it's about lies and truth. And Difference Maker is, okay, well, how do I really do this then? How do I begin to ferret out or reveal the lies that I believe that are now unconscious and operating all the time in my life? And what is the truth about me? And how do I begin to exchange uh, lies for the truth? What does that look like? And so that's, in other words, to begin to become a difference maker and turn up, turn my pain around and use it for good. Um, now, the project was really about getting the smaller book uh, into the hands of the people who need it right away. Uh, veterans, people who are suicidal, um, teenagers, preteens now, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, you can look at those books. You can get a good feel for them if you just go to my website at garyroe.com uh, and just click on the Suicide Prevention Project tab, wherever that is on your device. And it'll let you look at those four books or the Difference Maker series. Um, that's really the sum total of the project, Rob. It's just to, this, here's some more resources that people can use. Um, it's now for, for those who are suicide grievers, I wouldn't recommend any of those books, uh, except to if you're involved in suicide prevention now. Uh, that might be a, a good thing to, you know, download a simple Kindle version of Living on the Edge for 99 cents, you know, and and take a look at it and see if you think it would be profitable for um, you to use with with others, friends, etc. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for for diving into that. I'm always looking for more resources and I'll, I'll definitely be picking up both of those after this uh, conversation today. Oh, and I just wanted to throw out there for anyone who's listening to this on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you go to the show notes, I'll have links in there for Gary's website. I'll have a link in there to the Suicide Prevention Project. And then I'll also have a link in there to um, Gary's Amazon store where you can find his uh, his catalog of books. Um I feel like a nice way to round out this conversation, uh, just being mindful of, of your time. I'm, I'm thinking about someone who might be listening to this episode, who's now been listening to us talk for about an hour and a half. <laughs> um, and maybe there's someone who's going to get to the point of hearing this and saying, that's all well and good. I understand it. I don't think it applies to me. I don't think I need to face this grief. I think I'm good to to keep running the other way. I'm curious what what you would say to someone who thinks they either are exempt from having to face the grief in their life or they can escape it. And what would you say are the dangers of doing that? The dangers of doing that are everything. Um, if, you, if you view it this way, uh, here's the way I view things, um, uh, that a person is really their heart. You know, uh, our hearts are who we are. And uh, if you're silencing your heart, how can that be good? And the, the truth of the matter is we've all been wounded. And so our hearts are somewhat silent anyway. We've slowly, you know, 
the world has slowly kind of squeezed them and begin to silence them, etc. But what begins to happen is if you choose to try to wall off the grief in your life, again, you will not be successful. It will leak. Um, you are designed to feel the grief and to go through it and to heal and to grow. If you choose not to do that, and people choose not to do that all the time, uh, what usually results, uh, some of the things you can face are physical health problems, uh, increased depression, increased anxiety. Um, your relationships will begin to fray even more. Um, why? Because you're running and it takes a whole lot of energy to run. It affects every part of your life and it will exhaust you in the process. So uh, the other big danger is addiction. Uh, one of two forms, either you begin to develop some or the ones you've got begin to be really unmanageable and begin to rule and control your life. So um, please, <laughs> please, if, if, if you are thinking that, uh, a friend's statement comes to mind again, I will always deny what I am not prepared to accept. So many times, really, what we're not prepared to accept is the truth. We're just, for some reason, we just don't want to accept the truth. And, yeah. yet, and yet, when we accept the truth and live in it, it's always good. Even if it's painful, it's always good. Doesn't mean it feels good initially. Doesn't mean it's comfortable. Um, doesn't mean it's even satisfying or emotionally satisfying at first. But there's something when we begin to acknowledge the truth and live in it, there's something that happens that's good. And um, so please, I believe you're created in the image of God, that you're unique in all of human history, that there's never been another person like you and there will never be another person like you again. And that means I, I think uh, you were planned, you were wanted, you were personally created by God himself and placed on the planet for a mission and a purpose. And we need you. So please, please um, lean into the grief. It won't feel good, but you'll be glad you did. That was beautifully said. And I was sitting here smiling because if that was a form, I would have checked off every box in my experience of running away from my own grief, increased depression, increased anxiety, disconnection from the people in my life, increased addictive behaviors. I mean, just... Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head there. And I, I just want to take a moment, Gary, to express my admiration for you. I feel like when when we're young, when we're children, we have a big bag or a sack over our shoulder. That's the image I've always had in my mind. And it's it's filled with things. Some things we put in there, but most of them are put in there by other people and other experiences and you took this bag that was filled with a lot of pain and loss and sorrow and grief and dis-ease. And what you did is you took it and you poured it out on the table and you've shared it with so many people. And you've allowed people to do the same, to just connect with you in a way that I think is 
uh, incredibly important and moving and something that is very much appreciated by me and I know many other people as well. So I wanted to express that and wanted to express my gratitude for you uh, coming and speaking with me today. Oh, Rob, you're more than welcome. And, you know, I just have to say again, finally, thank you, Jesus, because I I don't know. I look back in my life and I think, how did I do that? And how did I do that? And how did I realize that at 15? And how did I, you know, um, and there are just a lot of things that I cannot explain that I'll say just thank you, Jesus. That's a good note to end on. Thank you, Gary. And I know we'll speak again, and I, I do look forward to it. Me too, Rob. Thank you very much. Honor to be with you. Be well, and I'll speak to you soon. All right. You too. All right, Gary. Bye now.